Let's get your book published, sharing the truth while giving you tips, tricks, and secrets about the publishing industry with your host, Nicole Gabriel. For 25 years, Daniel Ed has supported the public sector, healthcare, nonprofit, K-12, and higher ed organizations as a management consultant. He holds a master's in business administration in international business from the Albert School of Business and Economics at Seattle University. He holds certifications in strategic planning and group facilitation. Dan is a Kaplan Norton Balanced Scorecard graduate and certified lean practitioner. He has also held the Project Manager Professional Certificate and is an experienced Baldridge examiner through the Alliance program. Leveraging the genetics of leadership, Cracking the Code of Sustainable Team Performance is Dan's second book. His first was Transformation Management, published by Spiro Press in 2003. Dan lives in Belleville, Washington, not far from the world headquarters of Microsoft, T-Mobile, Expedia, and Amazon. His wife, Kay, is a pediatric physical therapist for the local school district. Dan serves on the board of three nonprofits and finds time to volunteer at the Monroe Correctional Facility, where he supports men in their personal journey of transformation. In his spare time, when it is available, he enjoys the challenge of capturing, through photography, the beauty and majesty of the outdoors. This might be a flower at the local botanical gardens or one of the national parks in the American Southwest. He continues to be a student of organizational transformation and how leadership can release the human capacity for innovation. As always, what I love most about doing these client interviews is getting to know my clients and sharing them with you. As always, I am my client's biggest fan. So without further ado, I introduce you to Daniel Eds. Okay, today's guest is Dan Eds, and I work with Dan on his book project. And first off, welcome, Dan. Thank you, Nicole. It's great to be with you. Well, it's great to have you. Okay, so before we get going here, I always ask all my interviewees about the book project. Um, you know, how did you come up with the idea that you had enough content? Because uh, all of our listeners love to know how do you generate content. So how did you generate the content for the book? And how did you know it was going to go into a book? And kind of give us an overview of, of the process and what you went through, maybe the pains that you had getting there, some of the things you learned, uh, just a general overview. What was the book process like? Well, sure. And thanks, Nicole. Um, the process itself, um, I, I have to say, it's as much about a personal journey as a professional one. Um, the, the the idea behind the book actually started um, uh, in my consulting work. I've been doing management consulting for roughly 25 years. And um, all too frequently, I would, I would go into an organization, lots of excitement. You know, we're going to go out, we're going to change the world. People are excited about what we did. Um, lots of enthusiasm. And I come back a few months later and nothing's changed. And... Um, the more I got looking at that, the more I realized it was it was it was leadership, but it wasn't necessarily bad leaders or bad people, 
but there was something else that was going on. It was almost like this thing that was going on in the background and a lot of research, you know, a lot of questions. Finally came to the conclusion it was really there was a systems thing going on. And when I saw that, um, the first question I had was, well, is anybody else seeing this? Um, and what is this whole idea of a system and how does it affect leadership? And um, there were any number of hurdles that had to be overcome. One was, you know, well, what is a system? What is leadership? Uh, um, you know, what's wrong with, with organizational leadership today? And was anybody else seeing what I was seeing? And turn, come to find out there's a lot of people that are seeing the same thing I was seeing. But one of the more unique things uh, about the journey of writing the book itself um, occurred about two years, maybe three years into the process where I'd hired a writing coach. And I had about um, six or seven chapters done. I, I had edited them. I'd even paid for an editor to go through it, do all the technical editing. And I was pretty proud of what I accomplished. And um, like I said, I'd hired this writing coach and um, uh, I sent the chapter, sample chapters off to her. And uh, she read every word, uh, got on the phone about three weeks later. And she said, Dan, your case studies are really powerful. Mm. The rest of it is really boring. <laughs> oh, what an ego deflator. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't, but um, what she said was, was really interesting. She said, you have all of these footnotes, you're quoting all these different people, but she said, what I'm not hearing is you. Mm. And she said, you have a voice. And um, she said, people might pick up a book to read because of the content, but people will finish reading the book because of your voice. Mm. Yes. And um, she, she explained to me that the, all of the research that I had done was terrific, but putting all of the all of the footnotes into it and quoting all of these experts, um, she said, "Dan, you're hiding behind them." Mm, yes, yes. And um, the next thing she said really um, floored me. She said, "Dan, I want to hear your voice, and I want to give you permission to speak hey. your voice." Exactly. I was going to say, you know, I went through the same, same darn thing. And I said, somebody had to give me permission. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it's a fabulous thing. It, it, it was. And, and from that standpoint itself, it was worth every minute I put into this project. And, um, and meeting with her, you know, on the phone uh, and virtually, um, it was funny. I was never really sure if I was talking to a to a to a, 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 a writing coach or if I was talking to a therapist. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, we all go through something like this, and and people don't really know what we have to battle in ourselves to get yeah. our words on the pages. And I yeah. went through it too, and I yeah. said, "Who am I to write a book?" You know, right? And. Yeah. Uh, and then I needed someone to give me permission, like a school project, you know, like it's okay. Yeah. You can, this is your book. You get to write what you yeah. want, you know? Yeah. 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 It, it was really the first time anybody told me 
that I had a voice and that it was valuable and that I had permission to speak it. And, And for whatever reason, that was just an incredible gift. Oh, yes. Well, I am so glad I asked you this question because I love the emotion behind it. And I've been there myself. So many authors I work with are. And and quite honestly, most of my podcasts that are the most popular are the ones that uh, give people permission to just to, to, to speak. And, um, you know, it's OK to go forward and getting it done. It doesn't have to be perfect. But, right. you know, we all do have a voice. Right. So. That is beautiful. And congratulations, because you made it over that hurdle. So, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. I'm not sure I've made it over the hurdle, but I'm working at it. <laughs> we, we are all a work in progress. So That's right. Okay. And, you know, and I, I need to back up a little bit because I didn't actually introduce the title of your book. So let me ask you, uh, the title, Leveraging the Genetics of Leadership, Cracking the Code of Sustainable Team Performance. So tell me, what is the book about and and what is it that took you over the hurdle so that you actually decided to write it? Well, like I said, I've been doing management consulting for, you know, 25 years. And um, so many times uh, I've gone into, into these various organizations and I've met people who are dedicated willing to sacrifice. They wanted nothing more than to contribute everything they had to their organizations. But all too frequently, their organizations were just happy with average and mediocrity. Um, mm. They didn't really care that their people wanted to work for an organization of excellence. And um, just to give you an example, um, I'd completed a project for a large state agency. It was an agency that licenses and regulates 450,000 healthcare professionals. And uh, when I finished the project, I was finishing up with a final interview with the deputy director and uh, finished the conversation. I was, I was literally standing up. I was ready to walk out her door and almost in a tone of confession, she said, you know, Dan, I don't even tell my friends where I work anymore. Mm-hmm. And I turned around and I said, why is that? And she said, it would be too embarrassing. Oh, no. And uh, I'd love to say that that was an outlier, that I've never heard that same thing before. But the reality is I've heard that same kind of sentiment dozens of times. Maybe not yes. quite that bluntly, but... Um, when I heard that, and, and I've heard you know like the same thing many, too many times, I have finally something dawned on me. There, there is something fundamentally wrong with the way we're doing leadership, and the research actually is quite plain. There's lots of things wrong with the way we approach leadership uh, in our organizational lives today. Um, it wasn't just this person. It wasn't just because it was a state agency. Um, organizations of all stripes are experiencing the same kind of dysfunctionality in their leadership. Yes. Well, I mean, some would argue we are seeing that in our presidency right now. So, yeah, yeah. So I know this is not just another book about leadership, but what makes this one so different? And I mean, I know there are a lot of books about leadership in the market. So, so what is it about this one? Well, Nicole, you're right. There are a lot of books on leadership. And in fact, my last, uh, 
search on Amazon uh, gave me the number of 197,000 books on leadership. So we don't exactly need another one. Um, basically, books on leadership fall in what I call two broad categories. Um, one is a well-known executive CEO writes a book on leadership. And basically, they're telling the reader, do what I did and you too can achieve my sense of, 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 of power and fame. And it's really, really a, it's really a book about um, legacy and confirming personal legacy. Now, whether or not that personal legacy has any um, reality or, or, you know, back to how they actually ran their organizations is a different, different question. But they're really trying to establish their legacy. The second kind of book on leadership really looks at leadership as a series of personal traits, laws, attributes, qualifications. The problem is, if you look at all of the traits and attributes and qualifications uh, required to be a great leader, I'm not sure that any combination of Martin Luther King Jr., St. Francis of Assisi, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Winston Churchill, or Franklin Roosevelt would be able to model all of the attributes and traits uh, considered essential to be a good leader. There's a third kind of book, um, though, that, that looks at leadership uh, from the standpoint of the organization and uh, what kind of leadership is required to create an organization of excellence. Mm. So let me guess that your book, Leveraging the Genetics of Leadership, is one of these books. As a matter of fact, Nicole, you're absolutely right. Uh, awesome. So what is it uh, that's important for us today? Well, several things. So let me, let me just give you four. In the U.S., we spend an estimated $50 billion a year on leadership development, yet there's virtually no evidence that that money is creating any kind of organizational return on investment. In fact, there's a growing body of evidence that shows that organizational leadership, the general state of leadership, is not improving, but getting actually worse. Uh, Jeffrey Pfeiffer of Stanford University in a recent book called Leadership BS says, it is not just that all efforts to develop better leaders, decades of efforts, uh, of such efforts notwithstanding, have failed to make things appreciably better, it is making things much worse. Mm. Secondly, um, According to the latest Gallup numbers, 53% of the American workforce goes to work, collects a paycheck, and goes home. Uh, these are the non-engaged. Uh, in other words, they are not psychological owners of their work. There's another 13% of the American workforce that is actively sabotaging the workplace, which means that 66% of the American workforce is not contributing to innovation, and they're not giving the best of themselves. And the basic human capacity for creativity and innovation is being left at the door. Third reason, the average CEO lasts about five years. And when she leaves, most of the rest of the C-suite moves on with them. Mm. And eventually the workforce just gets tired of the circus. Emotionally and psychologically check out. And they go about the, the daily work of just doing their job. Fourth reason... Uh, the number one determinant of workforce engagement is not salary or benefits, but the relationship with a manager. In other words, leadership is now being recognized for what it always has been, which is a relational enterprise. All of this leads George Clifton, 
chairman of the Gallup organization, to conclude, quote, the American leadership philosophy philosophy simply doesn't work anymore, end quote. Mm, that's a bold statement. So, uh, okay, so what is it about your stance or your book or your opinion or your experience that uh, provides a solution? Yeah, great question, Nicole, and thank you for that. Most books and training on leadership development starts with a question, what makes a great leader? The assumption is that by making great leaders, we can build great organizations. Unfortunately, the evidence is that it doesn't work this way. Individuals go off to a leadership course and they come back to their organizations and they can't implement what they've learned because entrenched systems are already in place that supersede the ability of one person to change the system. Edwards Deming, who is the father of the of the quality movement, put it best when he said, a bad system will be a good person every time. Mm. But what makes um, this book, Leveraging the Genetics of Leadership, different is that it starts with a different uh, kind of question. It starts with the question of how do high-performing organizations approach leadership? And what I discovered is that organizations that consistently perform at an elite, at an elite level, and by consistently, I mean for three, five, six, eight, ten years or longer, they start out with uh, designing a system of leadership, and then they, uh, which is kind of like a, uh, which is kind of a organizational DNA, and then they emphasize the system and they train, coach, and mentor every leader or manager to the requirements of the system. Wow. So if I understand that correctly, that a high performing organization would design a great system rather than developing leaders. That's exactly what they do. Wow. So an, an organizational system that sounds maybe a little technical and complicated. How, how do you work that? Well, it, it sounds technical and it sounds complicated. And frankly, there's a lot of people who uh, write about systems and systems theory that make it in my judgment, way overly complex. But let me see if I can explain it with a story that um, most of us can relate to. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. When my son was in the sixth grade, he wanted to try out for the school basketball team. Mm-hmm. Now, the idea of a, of a tryout was a bit of a stretch because he went to a school that was so small they could barely field a team. <laughs> Essentially, any, any boy that wanted to play basketball got to play. Um, Will, their coach, had played some basketball in college. He was not any kind of a professional basketball coach. Um, He was a youth worker. He liked kids, and he was just looking for some extra money to further his schooling. But he knew how to do one thing, and that was how to build a system of how to play the game of basketball that emphasized unselfish team play. And he created a kind of of, uh, team DNA that focused all of the competitiveness of young boys to unselfish team play. It was not about winning or losing. It was about playing to a specific code that gave them the best opportunity to win. Hmm. So uh, how did that work? Did they become league champions? (laughs) Well, Nicole, I'm sorry to say, but um, they actually lost every one of their games. Oh, no. (laughs) Um, And as a dad, I could tell you it was heartbreaking watching these young boys just play their hearts out, but lose every game. Okay, so what happened? Well, um, the second year, they actually did a little bit better. They they won about half their games. Um, 
but Will, Will, their coach, kept working with them in how to play the game of basketball in a way that focused on unselfish team play. Win or lose, they're going to, going to play unselfishly as a team. So the second year, like I said, they did a little bit better. They won about half their games. What was amazing to me, though, was that nobody quit. Because I think these young boys would have been quitting on their best friends. Now, the third year, the unthinkable happened. Same boys from the same small school where everybody got a boy got a chance to play, won undefeated, and won the league championship. Ah, oh, what a great story. Okay. Yeah, and this, and this dad still gets cheery. I just talking about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome! I I love your emotion. So yeah, you yeah, thank you. Yeah, you you've got the right interviewer here because uh, <laughs> I I lead with emotion and I wear my heart on my sleeve and yeah. So, but that that is an awesome story. So okay, but what is the connection to organizational leadership? Sure. Well. Um, there's actually three of them, but uh, one of the first ones is that systems have a really critical or essential attribute. Um, systems always produce more than the sum of their parts. This is why Coach Will was able to design a system that took boys of modest talent and turned them into champions. Mm -hmm. In fact, in most cases, a system will generate exponentially more than the sum of their parts. Uh, for example, one of the case studies and the book is of an elementary school principal, uh, elementary school teacher. When Aaron, the principal, took over, uh, this school was failing on multiple fronts. Um, there was infighting among the staff. Uh, there were no community partnerships. Uh, it was the uh, lowest performing school in a district of 25,000 students and 18 different elementary schools. Five years later, it was the highest performing elementary school. And when that was not enough, they took it up another notch and became the only school to close the achievement gap, which is a monumental achievement. Mm -hmm. So I like to say that, that a system can take, can take one plus one and create 10. Wow. Yeah. Second thing is a system always delivers something of significant value. Let's call that a purpose. For example, a system that we call DNA organizes a handful of elements you know, that can be found in virtually any household uh, kitchen called sugar and phosphate. Um, but the way those the interactions of sugar and phosphate, uh, those basic elements happen, is that those, the interactions creates biological life. Um, I found in researching how elite organizations approach leadership is that they've stumbled on this idea and they have designed systems of leadership to produce something that's totally unique to them. Mm. Turns out it always includes the experience of the workforce. So like the, the system that Coach Will designed, those young boys experienced the joy of playing on a team where each player supported each other. Yes. It is, it is what motivated those boys to stick with the team even though they were losing every game. Yes. In my research, I found organizations that consistently perform at an elite level set a purpose for their leadership, things like relationship, respect, safety, collaboration, servant leadership, and my all-time all favorite, love and grace, which simply means that mm -hmm. for someone working in one of these organizations, they could go there, they can get up in the morning, go to work, 
know that they were going to experience relationship, knowing that their voice was going to be respected, knowing that their personal safety was going to be valued, knowing that collaboration was part of part of the um, the process of being there. So it was really the uh, the so when they taught when these organizations divine the uh, excuse me determined the uh, purpose of their leadership it always included some kind of experience of the workforce mm-hmm. third thing um, coach will knew that when he was um, uh, coaching these boys uh, as a basketball team he was doing more than just you know coaching young boys to play basketball but he was also turning them into young men yes. And one of the unexpected findings in my research is that elite organizations are as intentional about uh, developing better human beings as they are about the technical skills of their workforce. Mm. For example, one of the case studies in the book is about a hospital that is consistently ranked as one of the nation's safest hospitals. Some of these even speculated it is one of the safest hospitals in the world. And they um, they not only want to develop better doctors and nurses and medical assistants and research people, but they also want to develop a stronger and more confident um, uh, human beings. They have learned that when they develop a workforce that is confident and has the courage to speak up when they see an opportunity to improve their system, they have not only created a better uh, nurse or a doctor, but they have created a better human being and this additional value gets passed on to their patients. Wow. Wow. You know, actually I have a, a friend that owns a, a bunch of subway stores or, or uh, restaurants. And he told me that he realized very quick into it. He's got several franchises. He said he's actually raising our youth and yes. yeah. And you know, that's a big, that's a big moment when you acknowledge that you're not just running, you know, a franchise, but you're, you're training our future. And, um, well, yeah. And the interesting thing is when you do the research on millennials, um, they're pretty clear. They are not interested in being led. Um, they're not interested in being told what, what to do. They want to be a contributor but they are in love with the idea of being developed. They want their value to be developed. Wow. Um, don't expect to talk to a millennial and tell them what to do and, and have them be happy about it. But if you work with them in development, they're all in. Wow. So this maybe is a new idea that leadership can be understood as, as an organizational system? Well, yes and no. Um, it, it certainly is a new idea. Um, the U.S. military has actually been treating leadership as a system for years. That's one reason why they are the uh, acknowledged world's best in developing leaders. Um, outside of the, the U.S. military, though, there's a handful of scholars and researchers that are just beginning to talk about it. Um, one of them, which was who was a, a, a tremendous uh, mentor and, and, and encouragement to me, was uh, Dr. Barbara Kellerman. Uh, she teaches at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and is one of the most respected scholars around le- uh, about around leadership in the country. <laughs> but out- <clears throat> excuse me, but outside of her and a handful of others, it really is a revolutionary new idea. Mm. Wow. So what you may not know about me is that I actually have a pretty extensive background in executive management in the automotive industry. Mm-hmm. And so as you're talking, I'm thinking, okay, so if 
Say I'm a CEO or even a mid-level manager of maybe a hospital or in my case was the automotive industry. What, what does this all mean to me? Well, um, one of the uh, reviewers um, for the book, um, he's one of the, happens to be one of the foremost experts in systems research. He teaches at the um, university in England. Uh, and this is what he said about, uh, about the idea and about the book. He said, it means that anybody with integrity and a reasonable level of emotional intelligence can learn how to lead. And I think this is the lesson of the military. The military is terrific at taking young men and men of average talent and turning them into leadership, you know, rock stars. It's the same thing that Coach Will did with those young boys. He designed a system that took uh, athletes of modest talent and turned them into champions. Mm. So I know that you also did a lot of interviewing. And so tell me about the organizations that you researched and some of the people you interviewed. Well, that's a great question, Nicole, and I, I love talking about this. Um, it, it really took about two years just to figure out what a leadership system looked like. But when I when I figure out what to what to what you know what they look like, and if I saw one walking down the street, uh, could I recognize it? Then I began to see um, every time I found an elite organization that was performing at a high level for a long period of time, I found the evidence of a design system. Mm-hmm. Organizations included um, several in the healthcare industry, manufacturing companies. I mentioned an, el- an elementary school. Um, also included organizations as diverse as the New York Mafia. For oh one. wow! The wow. Salvation. <laughs> and on the other end of the spectrum, the Salvation Army, um, an award-winning Ford dealership, and even an NFL Super Bowl champion uh, who was a perennial playoff contender. Wow! So that's a pretty diverse group. Yeah, and the, the you know the 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 fun part it was really the, the the people I got to interview or allowed me to interview them. Um, they are some of the most amazing people I've ever had the opportunity to meet. Um, you'll never hear any of them in the national news media. Um, I think they're too busy to uh, uh, recreating the world of work um, than uh, to be a, a concern about um, their uh, their national reputation. But um, just a, a couple. Um, one was, uh, I mentioned this elementary school principal. And uh, when I sat down with her, I said, um, I want to ask you about your approach to leadership. And she looked at me and she said, leadership? I don't know anything about leadership. And then she went on and described the most eloquent system of leadership I found. Mm-hmm. Um, another one was uh, actually two gentlemen, both senior U.S. Army officers. One was a uh, full colonel, um, 34-year veteran, U.S. Army veteran, U.S. Army Ranger, served most of the, most of his career with with the Special Forces, and um, the other one actually happened to be a guy by the name of General Barry McCaffrey. Uh, general McCaffrey um, retired after 32 years. He's a four-star general. Um, when he retired from the Army, he went on to serve in the Clinton cabinet as the nation's drug czar. Uh, if there's anything about leadership. Uh, General McCaffrey doesn't know about. It's not worth knowing. And, um, you know, I, I interviewed him about a year and a half ago, and I'm, frankly, I'm still reading from that interview. It was hands down the single most uh, probably impactful one-hour conversation in my career. Wow. Wow. 
Wow. So um, these leadership systems, can they uh, be designed to each organization's specific needs? Like, is there a one size fits all? Yeah, that's a perfect question. And that's one of the, the, uh, the, the, the great um, applications of this. So let me give you an example. Um, Anchorage, Alaska, there is a Native American healthcare system. Uh, this system serves 200 Native American tribes in the, in the south central part of Alaska. They have twice been awarded the nation's highest honor for organizational excellence, which is the, Na- the National Malcolm Baldridge Quality Award. Uh, to win this award once is a monumental achievement. To win it twice is virtually unheard of. Hmm. Their system and their system of leadership begins and ends with a core value of relationship. Relationship and the whole idea of relationship, and I would probably have to add story in there as well, is what drives the model of healthcare delivery and drives how they approach leadership. It's the lens through which they engage their their patients and their staff. Um, In fact, the value of relationships means they don't even call their patients patients. They call them customer owners because it's a better expression of that relationship. Mm. Um, Native Americans come to them um, for care, um, and and they are these these the, the people who come to them for care. They are both customers, but they are also owners of the system. So they call them customer owners. Um, and relationship is also a central theme in Native cultures. Um, they have survived uh, for thousands of years based on the whole idea of relationships. Wow. So when someone comes to them for care, they're not just going there as an individual, but they're going to their the hospital or to a clinic because they are a whole human being of, and they're a network of individuals with families and communities. And so the, the healthcare system actually look at the, looks at the individual customer owner as part of a network of relationships, one of which happens to be Native Americans' own sense of spirituality, where most Western medicine would um, ignore spirituality, if not scorn it. This healthcare system actually absolutely celebrates it. Wow. So um, while it would be maybe easy to say, well, we need to take their system of leadership and bring it into another healthcare organization. It's a great idea that wouldn't work. You wouldn't, you'd be, you'd be foolish to try to take their views of leadership, their system of leadership and drop it into say a large teaching hospital in a, um, in a art, in a large urban community. And while some parts of their system might be trans transferable, much of it would be, would be rejected outright because of institutional values, customs, and cultures. Wow, well, that's that's really actually it's very touching. Um, it, it it really is um, building relationship, and it's really quite beautiful. Well, it is, and it works for them, uh, and, and it works for them because the whole idea of relationship is is it's it's part of their culture. They they yeah. value relationship. Now, um, there's a healthcare, another healthcare organization that I use in uh, in the in the book as a as a case study. Um, they don't talk about relationship, but they do have a core value of respect. 
Mm-hmm. So everything for them is driven off of a value of respect. Now, you could argue that that they all end up in the same place. But yeah. um, the idea of relationship has a special meaning for a Native American healthcare organization mm-hmm. or for a large urban healthcare uh, system. The value of respect, um, it it's meaningful to them and it's meaning, meaningful to their patients. Mm-hmm. I'm currently helping a friend through uh, their cancer treatment. And I, you know, I thought, well, this is kind of cold. I looked and saw that they gave him a cup and, you know, had their, their logo on it. And I'm like, gosh, well, that's your token for, hey, thanks for coming to our hospital. And here's your cup. Sorry about your cancer, (laughs) you know? And uh, I'm like, I don't know how I would read that, but I guess, you know, they've acknowledged clearly that they are a business. And, um, you know, if, if a cup is their token, I, I, think it's maybe a little bit cold, but, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of these healthcare, uh, you know, hospitals and clinics and, and whatnot, they're all realizing they're in competition for, yes. uh, you know, so much. And yeah. you, you just don't think about it. I mean, when you're sick, you're going, Oh, I need care. But yeah. you know, if you have yeah. a relationship built, you'd probably be likely to go there. Well, so, you know, that's a, that's a great observation. And, and, and you're right, more and more um, healthcare organizations are realizing they are in competition and they're in competition, um, significant competition. Um, I mentioned uh, another healthcare system, the one that, that operates off of a value of respect. Um, and they define respect as respect for the work, respect for the worker, and respect for the patient. Mm. And um, respect for the work means to them that they need to, um, and respect for the patient means that they need to focus on um, the perfect patient experience and error-free healthcare. Now, that's a long ways from giving somebody a cup with their name on it. Yes, yes. And... um, so just as an example of how that plays out, um, if because they put so much energy into um, providing error-free health care, they are able to produce an elim- or they're able to eliminate uh, waste whenever and wherever they see it, which simply means they, they have higher productivity, they have less de- economic waste. So during the 2007-2008 recession, most hospitals around the country were laying off doctors and nurses and and medical assistants. This this particular healthcare system was one of the few in the country that didn't have to lay off anybody. And the fact is they still continued to pay bonuses to their staff who qualified for bonuses. So you can imagine if you're a patient of that organization, and everything is driven off of a value of respect, logic would suggest that your experience with that, with that healthcare organization is going to be one of respect. And that's exactly what they see. They have some of the highest rates of, of patient satisfaction in the country. And I don't know that they give uh, people cups, but something tells me they don't. But yeah. what, they, what they do give, though, and it all begins with a value of respect, what they do give, though, is a patient is a, is a patient experience 
where the patient is heard, where the patient is valued, the input. It's really a collaborative process. And it drives it drives the, the perfect patient experience. Mm. Well, I, I've had a bunch of questions for you, but I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because we are uh, running a little bit long here. Yep. But I, I want to ask you, so I have always thought of leadership as a person who's inspiring. Uh, yep. Someone others will naturally want to follow. But this idea of leadership system seems like it's, it, it doesn't really need personal inspiration. Yeah, great observation, Nicole. So, you know, the, the reality is inspiration only goes so far. After a time, inspiration gets old and, you know, we, we must all, you know, just get down to do the work of taking care of customers and designing products and services to meet their needs. What I discovered is that organizations that consistently perform at an elite level for a long period of time really uh, focus on giving their workforce an experience, which in turn will then be passed on to their customer. For example, um, I mentioned Erin, the elementary school principal. She created a, a culture or a leadership DNA that focused on, on creating, a, creating a collaborative work environment. So while their, their staff were certainly inspired by the, the challenge of education, I mean, the teachers go into education because they like the idea what they could expect to experience when they walked in the door of that school was a collaborative experience with their fellow teachers. It was not about inspiration, but it was about an experience for her team that, that motivated to get them up out of bed in the morning. Um, the same thing in one of the manufacturing com- companies that I looked at, they very proudly um, state that they practice servant leadership. Mm. And uh, so, They've designed their system and they've trained every one of their leaders, not even to be, they don't even call them leaders, they call them mentors. So as a worker in this in this firm, if you walked in and you're working uh, in this company and they design and develop, manufacture high-end custom furniture, you can expect to be mentored. You can expect to have an experience where your supervisor was, was there to help you to find and eliminate waste. It was not about inspiration, but it was about the experience, the daily experience of working there. Mm. Second thing is the idea of of inspiring followers um, is any more an idea that I get kind of angry about. Um, I'll give you an example. There's a park right in the back of my house. And not long ago, there was a football coach running fitness drills for eight and nine-year-old boys. And this was a guy that had a, a girth that suggested a pretty healthy diet of pizza and beer. <laughs> and uh, his message to these young boys was, um, you know, was to run faster. And his encouragement was, there are leaders and there are followers. Who are my leaders? And I'm in my backyard and I'm hearing this. And I'm thinking, what is the message to these boys? Leaders are better athletes and followers? I don't think so. It's really rather stupid. Yet even in our business language today, we... We do the same thing. I was I was recently in a conference, and a very highly respected CEO of a of a major healthcare organization was talking about developing followers, as if people uh, with positions of authority were better than those um, than those who didn't have authority. And and you know, as she was talking about having to develop this sense of followership, and I thought, you know, I don't recall anybody ever 
being excited about the idea of being a follower. Um, you know, there's a half a billion people that have profiles on LinkedIn. And I don't think I've ever seen one that said, I'm a courageous, um, uh, happy to be follower. Mm, uh, yes. every, everyone yeah. wants to be a leader. Um, and so we, we, there's a lot of organizations, a lot of people are talking about, you know, creating followers, but no one wants to be a follower, especially yeah. not millennials today. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if I'm looking at getting a job, I'm going into an organization and I was, I was being interviewed for the job. I was on an interview. Um, what should, what should I ask to learn about what their leadership leadership system is all about? Yeah. Great question. And um, having raised a millennial, um, this is a, a question that I, I've thought a lot about. But um, if, I was, if I was being interviewed for a job, one of my first questions would be, what are you going to do to develop my value? And what are you going to do to uh, make me, help me to become a better human being? And if the, inter- if, the, if the recruiter couldn't answer that question, I would get out of there and run as fast as I could. Mm. On the other hand, if, if the recruiter had a very clear path how this organization was going to develop my value, that's not just professional value, it's personal value as well. Because um, so one of the things that I saw is that high-performing uh, high organizations, they put a lot of emphasis on, on creating personal value right along with the professional value. Um, but if I found an organization that had a game plan on how to do that, I would take whatever they offered because in a few years, the world would be knocking at my door. Wow. You know, having done so much time in executive management and in the corporate world, and I did project and program management for years. Uh, my MBA was in technology management. So I used to manage large uh, systems with large budgets. And I can tell you, I used to spend so much time just sitting in the ladies' room crying my eyes out because it was miserable. So I, I have to say, if all of what you're saying has a possibility of happening in a new environment and a new workplace. And, you know, honestly, I think uh, all things COVID, we are now seeing exposed all of the things that aren't working. And I think uh, it's a perfect opportunity to explore new ways. And, you know, we're all doing something totally different working at home when we used to go in the office. So I, I personally think your book is awesome timing and, um, So I know we're going to have a lot of listeners that want to know how to get a copy of your book and how do they do that? Where do we go? Well, uh, actually, the best place to go to get the book is my website, DanielEds.com. And um, as a special offer offer to your listeners, um, if they let me know that they heard heard this podcast, I'll uh, be happy to personally sign the book. And um, I'll also send them a, a special report that I am just now completing that shows um, it, has, it documents 14 strategies to an engaged workforce, or excuse me, four strategies to engage the workforce and 14 steps to engage the workforce. Um, and I really think that a, the next generation of leadership is going to be focusing on engagement of the workforce because that's where the, that's where the, um, the largest value add is going to come from mm-hmm. uh, is, uh, uh, is is a workforce that's engaged with the work 
Um, and, and Nicole, to your comment about uh, being miserable, one of the things I found in these, these exceptional organizations is that, number one, they had very high levels of engagement. Um, they had very high levels of employee satisfaction. And the, uh, one, of the, one of the more unusual experiences I had was um, uh, this manufacturing company that designs and manufactures custom furniture. Um, as I was waiting my tour, I was uh, got there a few minutes early. I was sitting in my in my car drinking my morning latte, and I was watching people come in the door. And when the, it was the almost it was almost surreal. People walking in the door were smiling, mm. and and, uh, and walking through their plant and interviewing some other people. Um, it was it was stunning. People would meet you. They they they'd look at you in the eye and they would smile. And um, and you could tell people enjoyed people enjoyed being there. Mm-hmm. Um, they were a, a highly diverse culturally a highly diverse workforce. Um, you go into the big uh, you know work room work room where people eat lunch and it smells like an international food bazaar. Wow! And uh, but you could just tell people enjoyed working there. And I wow. walked into hundreds of organizations and I've never seen anything like that. Wow. Wow. Well, I have to say talking with you gives me just uh, an incredible sense of, of comfort knowing that, you know, somebody like you has done the time, done the research, you know, written the book and you're, you're watching this and you're looking for improvements. And I have to say, wherever you're working, I would know that's a great place to work because you're, you, you've done your work and, um, you know, and I, I just, I, it's so refreshing. It's. Well, th- thanks, Nicole. I, I like to say I'd, um, I'd like to start a revolution of how we approach leadership because uh, I think it's so critical for today. And as you mentioned, especially uh, with COVID, um, it's COVID is going to require that we, we absolutely look at leadership in, in a different way. Yes. Uh, people working virtually from home. Um, there's a lot of leaders that are, that are losing a lot of power and control. And, yes. uh, and uh, how they deal with that is really going to be uh, telling in uh, what kind of productivity and experience of the workforce and ultimately the experience of the customer that they provide. Wow. Well, Dan, I want to thank you so much for your time today. And I wish you the best of luck with your book and your mission to strengthen leadership and I am the biggest supporter of all of my clients and what you're doing. And um, congratulations, because you you made it through this. You got the book done. You've got so much experience, and the world needs to hear what you have to say. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, Nicole. I appreciate the time. Awesome. All right, you guys, I'm going to place this interview over on my website on the blog, and you can link over to Dan's website from there. So until next time, I'm wishing you peace, love, and light. Check out our online book publishing program, join our email list, or earn a great income by signing up for our affiliate referral program over on our Let's Get Your Book Published.com page.